you know, Raj, in life, like, if you want to do something, you got to do it, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter what anyone says. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what your siblings say. I mean, if you have a vision, if you have uh, a desire to do something, yeah, then I'm a strong believer that, like, your internal voice and ambition needs to be enough. And we talk about this a uh, bunch on the first few episodes. Our parents' perspective was so vastly different from ours, right? They came here with their backs against the wall, had to make a living for themselves, raise a family in a country that was foreign. It's like I spoke it into existence. Then I think back like, no, I did it. It was hard work, sacrifice, discipline, commitments, big balls, big falls, bigger ups, good intentions. Take a look in the mirror. I'm proud of who looks back. So I stand tall, lace up my J's, grab my book bag and... All right, everyone. Happy Saturday morning. Welcome to episode number three of the Raj and Bubs podcast. I am your co-host, Raj Patel. Happy Saturday. Hope everyone's doing well. Bubs? Happy Saturday, everyone. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Excited to be here for episode three. Uh, real interesting guest that uh, I'd love for you to introduce as uh, you have a pretty good relationship with yes. this guy. Yes, sir. We go back to our Loyola University Chicago days. Shout out LUC. Uh, we had an unfortunate showing in the March Madness tournament, but, uh, you know, onwards and upwards, as they say. Uh, so we we met at Loyola University Chicago, and then from there, he's had a very interesting journey to where he is today. He started uh, his career with U.S. rep Judy Biggert, shout out Judy Biggert, and then from there moved on to uh, being a Senate staffer, communications director with uh, Representative Ed Royce from California, and then moved on to become the majority staff director for U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, and most recently he's moved on to become the director of federal affairs and public policy at All State. Show me the money. <laughs> is that all state you're in good hands but anyways hands we are we are honored and we're so excited to we are very excited to have the voice you just heard mr satvik aletti satvik how you doing you're in good hands and uh i'm so impressed with <laughs> the fact that you paid attention at all anytime i talked about my career in the last uh, 10 years that was pretty good well, it's one of those things, you know, if you hear it 20 times, you're at least going to pick up one or two of them. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I actually, uh, I had one of my first bosses on a campaign that I worked on, a presidential campaign, 2012, when I worked on the Romney campaign. I lived in Las Vegas and I had a great boss at the time. And he told me they had proved it in human science that you have to tell someone something nine times before they'll have it ingrained. Nine times. I'm gonna have Jeez. to tell. I'm gonna have to pass that one on to Serendi because, yeah, man, your wife, she tells your me wife's stories probably... and it takes five, six times. She'll be like, "This girl, <laughs> Nitya Nadia." I'm like, "Who is that again?" She's like, "I just told you about her yesterday." <laughs> nine times. Yeah, tell your right, wife nine. To... Nine times is the is the lucky number. All right, good to know. So, Sat, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know I had given a little intro um, about you, but tell us your story post college. Um, what you've been doing since then and how that ultimately led to where you are today. Yeah, happy to do so. And thank you guys for having me on the podcast. I look forward to listening to other episodes and 
hearing these very important stories. And I think if there's something I've learned from this Love is Blind to Shake Deep Thief phenomenon is that the stories of young Indian Americans are often not told at all um, in, in our pop culture and other public forums. So really glad you guys are giving, giving a voice to some of those stories. Uh, yeah, Sadaletti, um grew up in the Chicago suburbs, grew up in Naperville, Illinois, went to Nequa Valley High School. I uh, went to Loyola University of Chicago after that, should have gone to University of Illinois, uh, despite then spending all of my Halloweens and St. Patrick's Day um, at U of I with Subroot. Uh, you know, I majored in biology, started school in 2006. I was a fairly middling average student and uh, pretty uninvolved in extracurriculars and other activities other than doing the occasional uh, Sasa dance and, uh, you know, that my friends choreographed. But I really, um, I enjoyed the hey, social Thursday, aspect. Thursday nights college. at the bar count as extracurriculars. Yeah, well, if those counted, then I was basically the student <laughs> body president. But, um <laughs> what was that Irish bar right Hamilton's, around the corner? And then we had Pumping Company or Picos. There it those, is. Those yes. are the two bars at Loyola. But I mean, you combine that Picos. with all the yes. you combine that with all the clubs in uh, Chicago, all the trips to Madison, U of I. I used to go down to St. Louis University a lot. I mean, uh, if there was anything I really majored in in college, it was uh, partying and having a good time. But I have absolutely no regrets. I mean, it was. The time of a lifetime. And I think when you're in college, you don't really have an understanding that you're kind of suspended in this really like artificial, not real world experience where, you know, your folks are footing the bill or you got student loans and uh, you kind of have the freedom to really pursue what you want to do and hang out with who you want to hang out with. So I took full advantage of it. We had a great crew at Loyola. Um, there was definitely a big Indian American community there, uh, which is what I had experienced in high school and middle school also. So uh, I fit right into that. Uh, graduated in 2009, which, as you gentlemen remember, global economy was basically collapsing. You know, I had a pretty average GPA. I had a undergraduate degree in biology, which you can't really do much with. And, um, you know, really didn't have the credentials, desire, or discipline to go to medical school. Uh, my folks were getting ready to ship me off to the Caribbean um, to get it done, as, as many people do pursue that path. And I kind of convinced them into this whole, you know, let me take a gap year, develop, find myself, uh, which really to me at the time meant like party with my friends who were still in undergrad that hadn't graduated yet. Uh, and there was definitely there was definitely some months of that. Uh, I was stringing together paying my bills by actually tutoring uh, for Princeton Review. So I tutored a lot of MCAT students uh, in physics because I'd done pretty well in that section. So ironically, I've maybe helped uh, produce a lot of future doctors while not becoming one myself. But, uh, you know, I kind of realized at some point in time that I needed to do some more serious activities to pad my resume um, with the intention of trying to go to medical school of some kind. And, you know, I had always had a love and interest in politics and current events and news of the day. And, you know, that was something that my parents, uh, perhaps unknowingly, had fostered in myself. Like, we always had a household when we were growing up that CNN was on TV in the background or Time Magazine was on the dinner table. You know, my, my dad and mom definitely encouraged a lot of discussions on uh, what was going on in the world around us. And naturally, my strengths lay in English, history, reading, writing, you know, anything kind of related to communications. And 
it took me a while to realize it, but I'd always been trying to put the square peg in the round hole on organic chemistry and biology and some of these science-oriented classes when I was really a speaker and a writer, um, which obviously leads to a career in public policy. So anyway, I thought, hey, I'm going to do this internship for a local member of Congress. It's going to look good on my resumes when I apply to medical school. Um, it gets me out of the house so my parents can stop harping at me. Uh, so basically in the summer of uh, 2010, uh, which is about where uh, the rest of my graduating class finally got out of school, I interned for Congresswoman Judy Biggert, uh, who Raj referenced in the intro. Judy Biggert was our hometown member. Shout out, um, Judy. Yeah, shout out, Judy Biggert. Hometown hero. <laughs> so, you know, she represented uh, the southwest Chicago suburbs in the United States House of Representatives. Uh, she was a moderate House Republican. Um, I joined her office at a time where I didn't really identify R with RIP. Yeah. I mean, I joined her office at a time where I didn't really identify with one party or the other. I mean, I had voted for Obama in 2008, like everyone else did. Uh, I was at Grant Park, um, the night that he gave his victory speech, but, but yeah, I ended up, uh, getting an internship with her and that was really my entree into a career in politics. And, uh, it's now been almost 12 years since I started that internship. That's 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 amazing. Um, wanna wanna keep going here. I, I, this is like really interesting to me. I know we really haven't gotten uh, a, a huge chance to talk about your career, and, and I'm really uh, looking forward to learning more. So today you're at Allstate. Um, what's a normal day look like for a director of federal affairs and public policy? Sure. So, you know, in Washington, D.C., we use a lot of uh, very fancy clinical terms uh, to describe lobbying. So you might see government affairs, federal affairs, government relations, um, but they're all basically used to describe uh, lobbying. So I am a lobbyist. I'm a, I'm a corporate lobbyist because I represent a corporation. Um, but anytime you hear Bernie Sanders or someone rail against uh, special interests and lobbyists, I am uh, I am one of those people. That's you. Uh, that's I'm what's you. referred to as an in-house corporate lobbyist. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, Bernie Sanders <laughs> is talking about me all the time. Liz, Liz, You're Liz talking Warren. mad shit about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what is lobbying, right? I, I think it even took me years in my political career to even figure out what lobbying actually was. And I would always hear the term and I would... Here, generally, people use negative, you know, connotations around uh, describing lobbyists and lobbying. Um, but, you know, lobbying is essentially the act of trying to convince someone who's in a position of power or influence to adopt a certain uh, position or take a certain stance that that, you, that is in your interest, right? And, you know, think about lobbying outside of a political context, right? Like, you guys are lobbyists in your daily lives. I mean, when you're trying to convince a colleague of your point of view in the office or where you're trying to convince your wife like hey this is what we should do this weekend or you're trying to convince um you know your mom and dad like hey let's like take this trip i mean you know you are basically engaged in lobbying someone every every interaction um that you that you have where you're trying to persuade someone of a point of view so that is what i do in a political context uh for a profession in that i try to convince members of congress and uh, to adopt policies or further laws or regulations that are favorable to all states' uh, health as a corporation, employer, uh, and business. So, uh, you know, on a day-to-day, -day, Savrut, uh, what you asked about, I spend some of my time um, educating members of Congress and 
congressional staff and people in the administration about Allstate's point of view on certain regulatory and um, tax and business issues. Uh, I try to give them Allstate's perspective as an employer that, you know, employs 45,000 people around the country. Um, You know, the thinking there is that people in government are not experts in insurance, right? I mean, they've never worked in an insurance company. They've never sold insurance. They don't really know much more about it than the average guy on the street. Uh, But they're in a position where they can regulate the industry. So at the very least, um, Allstate, as one of the major insurers, we're going to give them our perspective on how the industry should be regulated. So I do a lot of a lot of talking to people in government, kind of in a official lobbying capacity. I spend a lot of my time managing other lobbyists, and and what I mean by that is, so I'm the head of um, Allstate's federal uh, lobbying team here. So there's five federally registered lobbyists that Allstate hires as corporate in-house employees. We're the employees of Allstate, and then the third way major corporations tend to uh, wield influence over the government is we have multiple third-party firms of contract lobbyists who represent Allstate, um, and, and I also manage a pretty big team um, of those vendors. We have four firms on retainer. Uh, and then kind of the third big bucket of what I do on a daily basis is fundraising. Um, members of Congress have an extreme fundraising. amount of pressure on them. I, say, I, put, I put that with air yeah. quotes. Yeah. Fund, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you can F-U- drop the D keyword on F U N. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's 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 no secret. Uh, members of Congress are under an immense amount of pressure to raise money for their own campaigns. Right, campaigns aren't cheap. Uh, TV commercials, yard signs, uh, travel, uh, office space—they don't pay for themselves. Uh, so members of Congress need to raise money for their own campaigns. The vast majority of members of Congress are basically engaged in what I could describe as an almost 24-7 um, uh, rush for campaign money. And uh, you tend to have a lot of corporate lobbyists or others who represent corporate interests like myself uh, who are ready to give it to them. Sat, how many, how many days a week do you go out for dinner, drinks, fundraising activities, quote unquote? Uh, every night Congress is in session, so that can be... Uh, traditionally three nights a week uh, on the weeks that Congress is in uh, the District of Columbia. And then on top of that, uh, we do what we call weekend trips or pack pack trips, uh, which is where for a $2,500 contribution, you can spend the weekend with a member of Congress, uh, traditionally either in a nice destination in their district or state or, <laughs> you know, a resort or something around the, around the country. So, uh, so your internet's kind of spotty. So we lost you for a second there, but you were telling us about uh, the $2,500 trip for kind of a weekend getaway with the U.S. rep um, and uh, telling us a little bit about that. We'll let you finish. Yeah, I mean, so so basically for lobbyists like myself that represent corporations or other um, business interests, you know, the name of the game is essentially campaign contributions in exchange for access and relationship building with people in government. So yes, for $2,500 in a contribution, you can spend, you know, traditionally a Thursday through Sunday or Friday through Sunday session with a member of Congress in either a nice part of their district or state or uh, some kind of resort destination around the country. And that's on top of breakfast, lunch, and dinner 
um, with members of Congress while they're in the District of Columbia while Congress is in session. And a breakfast can go as cheap as $500, you know, you're... You'll eat some egg, eggs and bacon at some hotel around town yeah. and have basically 40, mem- uh, 40 minutes with a member of Congress. Uh, lunches will be traditionally a $1,000 contribution, and dinners uh, are traditionally a $2,500 contribution. And uh, that is a nonstop uh, kind of activity of our current system of uh, campaign finance here in, D- D- in D.C. Do you get, like, guarantees after that weekend? Or, like, how does that work? Like, so you, you, you convince them, you convince them, and then, like, do they just, like, give in after you contribute enough? Or, like, it makes sense for their population? Like, what does that look like? What does end goal success look like? Is there a quid pro quo? Well, well the, the famous phrase... We- yeah, the, the famous phrase we use in D.C. is that there is not a quid pro quo. Quid pro quo is illegal, right? Like, I'm not going to a dinner and saying, hey, here's, you know, $2,500 check, like, you need to vote this way on this. That's not how this works. But I think the value of it is the long-term relationship building and kind of trust building in that, you know, once this member of Congress or uh, the senator sees someone over and over and over again in support of their campaign, there's kind of the trust element of, well, when they bring this important issue to our office, you know, we can we can trust their perspective and a lot of lobbying is based on your reputation, right? Like your reputation as being someone who's an honest broker, someone who presents accurate information, someone who can be a good spokesperson for their um, for their client or for the industry that they represent. Uh, so I think a lot of it is in the long-term relationship building. Um, I think a lot of it is in just the access, right? Yeah. Like human nature. I mean, who are you going to listen to more? Uh, it's going to be the person you see, you know, three times a month versus the person you might see once a year. And that's kind of the argument against contributions in the system we built up, right? I mean, labor unions, uh, consumer groups, right? Like, they don't have these kind of financial resources really to contribute to the level that businesses do. So while everyone technically has the right to petition their government, uh, who is it that uh, has the right to do so more frequently? And you know, every every road points to the business community. It's just interesting to see how, uh, you know, the language is very well polished on this. You know, everything you say is uh, articulated very well. Um, I, I can tell that, you know, you guys have done a good job looking at how you can best present what it is that's being done. Um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of buzzwords access relationship building i like it i mean that's uh like it goes back to your in- incredible communication skills and kind of <laughs> where the heart of all this started for you yeah i mean i will tell you guys i if i'm sitting on a plane or sitting in an uber and someone asks me what i do for a living i do not say corporate lobbyist because it will engender you know 15 follow-up questions so like i think from a professional standpoint we're used to kind of answering questions about what we do, explaining it to people, quite frankly, defending it, right? I mean, there, there are good arguments as to uh, why you might see it as corrosive to our system of government. Um, it's important, though. I mean, I think COVID and kind of the aftermath of all the government action after COVID, I mean, has taught anyone that the government is an immensely powerful institution, right? I mean, government can basically shut your business down, deny you your livelihood, deem your industry to be uh, critical or not critical. I mean, government has immense power, especially in emergency situations. So in the long term, 
especially if you're a major employer, major business, you're going to want to have a relationship with people in those positions. Yeah. So, sorry, did you have a question that I, uh, <laughs> no, I, I was just thinking to myself that I'll like Sat, Raj and I are all in a, in a fantasy league and every year I'll send Sat at least seven to eight trades and he has yet to accept one. So I might take this lobbyist route where I hire a couple lobbyists for my fantasy team. So hopefully <laughs> next year, Sapt will accept my fucking trades because he just declines it so quick. It's so painful. Well, he's I he, work so hard. If the results speak for anything, he's very intent on mediocrity. I think he's kind of settled where he is. So that might be part of the reason too. <laughs> so Sat, I want to go. I don't have anything to say in response because I'm so terrible. So I want to go back to kind of, you had mentioned this when you told us what your household life was like initially. Like you watched a lot of CNNs, you guys talked about public events. And initially you kind of presented it to your parents as like, okay, this is going to be a gap year, a resume builder, that sort of thing. And then obviously ultimately it became a, a, much more than that. It became a career for you. Um, and it's, as far as first generation Indian Americans go, it's kind of atypical, this route that you've taken at your the only first gen friend I have that's gone this route. What was what was your parents' reaction ultimately when you said, "Yeah, I think I'm just gonna actually make a career out of this and do this for real." Yeah, they were not happy, and they were not happy for many years. Uh, and there were several inflection points that I can point to where I think things started to click for them, and they started to see it in a different light. But certainly from age, you know, 21 to I would say about 25. Um, you know, my mom still kept the MCAT books at home and was like <laughs> trying to convince me to apply to medical school every time I came home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, my parents were traditional Indian, you know, you want a career that has prestige, you want a career that has stability, you want a career that's going to allow you to, um, you know, have a certain kind of standard of living yeah. uh, that they were able to provide. Mm -hmm. And Obviously, that's why most of our parents push us to, you know, medical or technical um, professions. And, you know, they didn't know a lot about working in professional politics. They didn't know that you could work on Capitol Hill and make that a career. I mean, many of us didn't. I certainly didn't. You know, I would watch congressional hearings when I was in high school. Uh, I would kind of see some young kids sitting behind a senator. But you don't really know, like, hey, that young kid is like, you know, 26 years old. He's paid full time to work for that senator. And he yeah. probably wrote the hearing questions at the that the senator's asking. So, you know, professional political operative was not really a job or even concept that existed in my parents' minds. Um, the other tension about this was that, you know, in the positions I was working in, I was not making a lot of money. I was barely making any money. I mean, certainly like when you're working for the public interest, when you're working in government, I mean, my first salary on Capitol Hill was $27,500 a year. And that was in Oof. 2010. Was that full time? Um, you can see where that's full time. Yeah, I, I, mean, that, I remember like, visiting one of your first apartments. It was out in uh, somewhere in Virginia, and it was just like, <laughs> you know, it was kind of. Uh, I was just surprised coming from Chicago, living the life we had, to then you having this little. Uh, you were sharing a. You were sharing like a little two bedroom out there in Arlington Heights, I think. Uh, this dingy little place, and you were telling us about. <laughs> what your salary was and how far you had to make it stretch to survive out there. 
Yeah, so basically, like, exactly what you just described, Raj, it was also my parents, like, coming out to visit me and seeing, like, the conditions I was living in, and, but, but, yeah, I mean, man, I, I basically had to budget every dollar, uh, you basically had to rely on receptions and happy hours and other events that, you know, industry and business would host for people in government, literally, I mean, like, that was, like, how we fed ourselves, how we entertained ourselves, because we didn't have money to do anything else, so, that was kind of the dynamic in my career for quite some time. So, yeah. you know, I mentioned the inflection points where I think my parents kind of had aha moments, uh, and I'll describe them to you. Uh, the first was when I met uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Uh, and, you know, one of my former bosses, Ed Royce, uh, he was a U.S. representative from California. Yeah, He was chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he was one of the prime minister's, you know, staunchest allies in the U.S. Congress. Uh, so when Narendra Modi made his inaugural visit as Prime Minister of India in uh, 2014, uh, Congressman Royce took me to New York um, to meet uh, the Prime Minister and kind of see his first speech. And that was one of the best experiences really, really of my life. And um, I got a great photo uh, with the Prime Minister. Anyone, anyone who knows me has probably seen that photo <laughs> somewhere. Um, but that photo is like hanging up at my grandparents' house in, in Hyderabad. And... Um, you know, for my parents, they were just kind of like, holy shit, like this kid's 25 years old, basically has no credentials to speak of, and somehow he's hanging out with the Prime Minister of India. Um, yeah. That was kind of a big deal for them. I, I think that they sat up at one point and was like, oh, maybe this working, you know, on Capitol Hill for members of Congress uh, is actually significant and could go somewhere. Uh, so that was one moment where I think my parents saw the light a little bit. A second was certainly when I decided to pursue an MBA and finish my MBA. Um, you know, it wasn't wasn't the MD that my mom and dad always wanted, but uh, at least they were happy that I continued my education. Yeah, you got, you got some got letters after your name degree. now. And then, you know, yeah, I got some letters after my name. And then probably the third thing and the most important thing to them was like getting some, um, you know, getting some figures in my uh, Bank of America account, right? So like once once I reached a certain level of, financial compensation which i've only been able to do in the corporate world um you know they were they were happy and yeah. you know i'd structured my career leading up to my time at allstate so that i would be able to take advantage of private sector opportunities and do and do pretty well um and i always had that plan i had that plan for some 10 years but it took me the 10 years to execute and i don't think my parents really saw what the vision was until until it was all over but uh, once I did see it, uh, they were they were pretty happy. But you know, Raj, in life, like if you want to do something, you got to do it, right? Like mm -hmm. it it doesn't matter what anyone says. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what your siblings say. I mean, if you have a vision, if you have uh, a desire to do something, yeah, then I'm a strong believer that like your internal voice and ambition needs to be enough. And we talk about this a uh, bunch on the first few episodes. Our parents' perspective was so vastly different from ours, right? They came here with their backs against the wall, had to make a living for themselves, raise a family in a country that was foreign. And they, they legitimately only knew of a few specialties and careers like, you know, doctor, dentist, engineer, things like that. They didn't, they didn't have this knowledge that we now have about, okay, how many things exist, how you can be successful in so many different spaces and still be financially well off, still have a good career, good, have a good lifestyle balance. 
Um, our, our aperture for all of that has just widened so incredibly, um, just being first gen and going through what we've gone through here over our last 30 years and having that exposure. Our parents just didn't have that. And I feel like because of that, everything we heard from them was from a very limited lens. Yeah. I mean, our, our parents were basically in survival mode, right? Like it was their goal basically to get to this country. You survive, you have the next generation, you try to give them better opportunities. Um, but it's hard for them to recognize like one of the better opportunities they've given their children is, yeah, you can go and do, uh, you can go and do different things in this country. And, you know, my parents still had a bit of the traditional immigrant viewpoint of uh, this isn't our country, right? Like, why would we be involved in the political system or system of government um, in a country that isn't fully our own? And I've just, I've never felt that way. I've always felt very passionate about um, being an American and, and having a vested interest in the country's future. Yeah. So, so Seth, you, you briefly touched on like your plan A, your bio major, like aiming for med school. So like you were living your parents' vision of what you wanted to do. Um, and then you, you had this internship with Nancy Biggert, uh, and then you never looked back. Like what happened there? Like what happened in that internship that, uh, convinced you yourself to make it a career like hey this is what i want to do yeah at what point did you say like all right enough with med school yeah yeah that's that's a great question and i think it was just the realization that man i am i am good at these tasks that they're that they're giving me right like i'm good at the foundational work of politics which is communicating writing you know figuring out how to bring multiple stakeholders together to achieve a solution um, work, you know, working collaboratively with different folks, uh, trying to get along with people from different, you know, racial, socioeconomic and, and other kinds of backgrounds. Like I was always very good at that, but the internship and kind of starting my career in politics made me realize like that's, that's the fish and water, uh, kind of scenario for me. Right. Like it was never struggling with organic chemistry or trying to like, you know, steal myself to do my pig dissection in uh high school biology like <laughs> it, it just when you're doing something that you know you're good at and you enjoy it that's when you know for sure and i had just never had that feeling before in my life until then and it was such a new feeling i think it even took me a little while to realize what it was i was experiencing but once i did i just it's addictive right like i'd assume you know Kobe Bryant, right? Like the first time you shoot that, you shoot that basketball, you, you, you get addicted to that yeah. feeling of this is what I'm meant to do. I'm going to try to become the best at this. I think this could lead to a fulfilling life and career. And then you just want to do it more and more and more. And, uh, that's, that's kind of how I describe my, my career and my journey. Got you. Cause now I'm out here crushing it crushing it i see that man top 50 lobbyists in america uh the accolades go on and more to come i'm sure what what was it like when you were um you know you when you were starting off and you still kind of are but what was it like being a minority in that space obviously you don't see a lot of again indian americans in the um, political landscape yeah, certainly in 2010, when I first started my career, there were there were barely any. Um, the election of Barack Obama and kind of the, the crowd of folks he brought into his administration. Shout out, Barry O. was really what I saw as the start of, yeah, it was, it was really kind of the start of what I saw of the diversification of 
you know, representation in the in the federal government, in the Congress. Um, but up until then, I mean, no one really talked about the subject very much, right? I mean, you had you would kind of have a little bit here. You'd, you'd have Bill Clinton would have, you know, have a couple women um, secretaries of, of uh, in his cabinet, right? He would have, you know, George W. Bush was very proud of Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice. Um, but you never really talked about diversity in government. So when I started in 2010, it was still a largely Caucasian apparatus on um, both sides of the aisle, uh, both political parties. That's changed a lot in the last 12 years. Um, I think both parties have put in put in an effort. We've had lawmakers like my former boss, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who's really tried to make a good good faith effort to bring in people from different walks of life. And um, that's certainly benefited the Indian American community. I mean, we now have scholarship programs and things dedicated to uh, South Asians coming to Washington, D.C. and experiencing our government. We have multiple South Asian American members of Congress now, uh, which was not the case 12 years ago. So things have gotten better. Um, I've dedicated a lot of my time uh, in and around my career to trying to mentor uh, people of color and try to get them into decision-making positions here in D.C. So um, it, it's getting better. It'll take uh, it'll take more time, but uh, I do now see more faces that look like myself um, when I'm in DC, which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. When did you buy your first uh, Vineyard Vine pullover or polo? Because that really is to me that, talking of, about infliction. <laughs> talking about infliction points. That's an infliction point from where I'm sitting. <laughs> well, I mean, here's here's what I'll say about my Republican friends right and i i've worked for some very you know varied republican members of congress i've worked for you know very moderate republicans i've worked for very conservative republicans i've worked for republicans that represent areas like naperville and hinsdale and downers grove that are very racially diverse very cosmopolitan and then man i've worked for like if you want to see real America, like go to Orangeburg, South Carolina, or go to Elko, Nevada, right? Like you're going to see some very kind of disparate um, communities that we have in this country. And like, you know, I've been to some towns in this country where they've maybe never met an Indian American, right? Like they don't, yeah. they don't have that kind of community. Um, so I think like working in professional politics, it definitely taught me like this is a very diverse, a very large um, uh, you know, country, right? Like there's just so many different communities and backgrounds, but like by and large, man, I mean, I felt like everyone treated me with respect and like I treated everyone else with respect and you can learn a lot from people and you know, they would learn a lot from me. And sometimes I would always start my meetings on Capitol Hill with like, Hey, how do you pronounce your name? Right. And like, then the South Carolinians would ask me if I knew Nikki Haley. And I was like, no, I don't know her. We don't all know each other. You yeah. Know? But like, um, it just, people, people were always genuine. Americans were always genuine in their effort to just like get to know a little bit more about the person they were sitting down with. And I think that's why it's a great country. For sure. So uh, how did being an Indian first generation, Indian American help or hinder your ability to like navigate the political world? I think it's it's definitely helped me in the sense that it's given me multiple perspectives in which, yeah, I, I'm a Republican. I'm, I'm a very conservative person. I'm involved in conservative politics, but like I'm also an immigrant. I wasn't born in the United States. My parents weren't born in the United States. So like I can understand uh, an immigrant's point of view. I can understand maybe a non-Christian uh, point of view. I can understand why 
Indians are sometimes uncomfortable with the Republican Party's rhetoric on, you know, immigration and religion and some other issues like that. Uh, it's kind of always given me an ability to have, you know, a foot in, in two different worlds. And like, you know, I understand why Democrats think the way they do on certain topics, right? Like I grew up mostly around Democrats. I mean, all my friends were Democrats, right? Everyone I grew up with was Democrats. Vast majority of the Indian community in Chicagoland were Democrats or sympathetic to Democrats. So it's like, you know, even though I've lived my professional career in Republican politics, I also have a home community that is very, very left leaning. So it's like, it gave me a really holistic view of what the different political parties think, what are the arguments that they're making. Um, and I'm just as comfortable, like I could sit down and watch Fox News, I could sit down and watch MSNBC. Like, I'm not the kind of person where political views that aren't my own uh, bother me, which yeah. I think is, is a big problem nowadays that not enough people um, are able to say that. So that's definitely how being you know, Indian American immigrant, I think kind of benefited my career in politics. I'll also just make a very frank point here. Like it definitely benefited me also just from being like kind of a diverse, you know, rarity, especially in Republican politics, right? Like there's just not, not a lot of racial minorities. Certainly like you stick out a little bit in the crowd, um, in a, in a, in a positive way. And, um, I think about that all the time. Like had I pursued a career in medicine or it or, one of the more traditional fields where like, you know, I don't stick out in a crowd. Right. So, yeah. Um, but at the very least in the political world, it's always helped a little bit of a token Indianism and a affirmative action, if you will, almost. <laughs> so, you know, you've alluded to this a few times, how being a Republican sometimes is not, uh, it's not something that some Indians necessarily uh, gravitate towards. And same with, you know, being a corporate lobbyist, was there any sort of backlash from both of those that you had to deal with from either your family or friends or people in your community? You know, on the Republican side, I think you two know this from know me as well as you do, but like, I'm a very firm believer in what I believe in. And, you know, I have no problem being a contrarian. I have no problem being the one person in the room out of a hundred. If I believe in something, it's what I believe in. I like to think that I use well-reasoned arguments, that I that I think about things carefully. I obviously draw from my own life experiences. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think it's a complex process as to how someone comes into their own um, political uh, realization. But, like, I did with the Republican Party. And, like, I will never forget the first paycheck I ever got in my life. It was at Walgreens uh, on 111th and uh, Route 59 in Naperville. And I remember walking out of that store and looking at that paycheck and being so proud of it, but then also like calling my dad on my Motorola Razor and being like, like what, who the hell is FICA and why are they taking 6% <laughs> of my money? Um, they, they didn't, they didn't do 6% of the work. I mean, like I literally, I thought it was like an administrative or clerical error on Walgreens part <laughs> that they took 6% of my check. And I remember my dad explaining this concept that like you're basically going to have six percent of any paycheck for the rest of your life taken uh, to fund you know Social Security and Medicare and I don't know what I knew about Social Security and Medicare at that time but I will never forget the feeling of wow I worked for this money and the government came in and took some of it and you know I'm not an extremist I understand right like we we have to have a system of taxation we're got to have shared prosperity we're going to have hospitals and roads and a system of defense and social security and medicare are important but 
I just remember thinking at that time how upset I was and the feeling that like, man, if the government's going to take any of my money, like it better be damn sure that it's spending it on programs that are worthwhile and it's spending it well. And I think tragically, like that's just not what happens uh, in this country uh, at all. So that's definitely one of the animating factors for me. Like certainly I consider myself uh, a fiscal conservative. Um, that's why I'm a Republican. I believe that government should be limited. Uh, I'm also a social conservative, which I think makes me a bit more uh, of an outlier um, with my generation and with folks like you. Uh, sometimes when we're at happy hour, you guys tell me that you're, you know, secretly you're fiscal conservatives also. Um, but I, you know, I'm I'm pretty socially conservative. I'm not like, secretly a fiscally. I'm not secretly um, a fiscal conservative. I'm outwardly one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, maybe you've had your, maybe you've had your uh, uh, moment moment in the light too. But uh, Rod you know, recently, I'm also, like, I'm pretty proud. Rod recently changed tax brackets, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he needs to yeah. change my views of the world a little bit with that. <laughs> yeah, well, when the government is taking thirty nine percent of your income, it's gonna it's gonna change your views a little bit. So, um. But yeah, you know, I'm also a social conservative. Like, I'm I'm pretty staunchly pro-life, and uh, there's other issues. Like, I'm I'm pretty pro-gun rights, and that's just where I fit in. I mean, it, again, it took me a while to realize that. I voted for Barack Obama in '08. I used to watch The Daily Show every day. Like, I used to just kind of think that I was a Democrat, and a lot of cultural forces that we're confronted with, whether it's where you get the news, or you know, your buddies that you're talking to at happy hour, or you know, what have you, like, they kind of push you in that direction. And I would just, I've always prided myself on being um, an independent thinker and kind of making decisions um, on my own. And I'm also very easily can criticize my own party. I mean, I do not agree with a lot of Republican foreign policy over the last 15, 20 years. I mean, I think it's been disastrous for the United States. Um, has it made it hard being a Republican or being a corporate lobbyist? I mean, uh no, I, I I don't know. I mean, I feel like most people are pretty pretty accepting, right? If you have different political views, I, I think we're you know you guys are familiar with cancel culture and the discussion on censorship and things like that. But you know, by and large, I don't think it's affected any of my personal relationships. If it has, I don't I don't I don't know about it. Maybe you know my crazy lib friends from high school you know removed me on Facebook years ago or something. Um, in terms of being a corporate lobbyist, I think by and large, when you explain to people what lobbying is and uh, the fact that, yeah, even the, the teachers unions and the police unions, like they have their own lobbyists. The fact that like pain medicine doctors like Raj, like they have their own trade associations that have their lobbyists that represent their interests. Like, I mean, almost anyone in this country, depending on their profession or what they do for a living, has someone advocating on their behalf. Like, you know, I always joke, lobbying is like the one profession protected by the constitution of the United States or one of the few uh, professions protected by the constitution of the United States. And it's literally in, you know, the right to petition your government. Every, every U S citizen has the unfettered right to let people in government know um, what they think about issues. And that's valuable. Yeah. So don't, don't hate the game, hate the player. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Which one is it? Yeah. <laughs> don't hate, don't hate the player, well, hate well, the game. Yeah, there you go. Well, like, I mean, you know, people might, people might think that they don't like, corporate lobbying or they don't like corporations being involved in their system of government but like gas is 520 a gallon right like I, not in the great state of texas 
<laughs> well, te Texas maybe uh, is doing better than the rest of the country. But, like, obviously President Biden is going to talk to the head of ExxonMobil uh, and British Petroleum, right? Like, I mean, government is always going to have a relationship with corporations and, and, and business interests. And, you know, what are we all going to do if we don't have major businesses be successful in this world? I mean, we're all going to sit around in our huts and, and, you know, weave baskets, right? Like, businesses are good for economic activity, they're good for jobs, and they're good for productivity. Sweet. Um, so, kind of a pivot here, Seth. I uh, want to jump into your family life and, and learn a little bit more about the people uh, that help raise you or raise you. So, could you tell us a little bit more about your parents, uh, your siblings, your upbringing? I uh, would love to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I actually was born in the United Kingdom. Um, I was born in uh, London, grew up in Reading. And the reason for that is that my dad actually immigrated with his father, so my, my grandfather, um, in the 1970s uh, to the United Kingdom. So there was a lot of immigration from former British colonies, right? Especially after some of these countries uh, gained their independence. Uh, there was a pretty heavy... Uh, need for you know uneducated labor in the United Kingdom, so that's why you had a lot of people from Africa and and, and Asia uh, move to the country. So my dad actually at age fourteen has lived outside of the United States um, from from so from a very young age, uh, even in the nineteen seventies. So he's pretty much full, yeah, as Western uh, as it gets, if you will. So yeah, went to high school there, went to college there. Um, he uh, he grew up in a city called Luton in uh, in the UK. And my dad came back to see his younger sister get married uh, in Hyderabad in 1985. It was December, wedding season. And his dad told him, hey, you know what, man? Like, these plane tickets aren't cheap. You're here. We're going to get you married, too. Uh, which is literally <laughs> what he told him. So my dad, wow. and, you know, he ended up thinking he was just coming to see his younger sister get married. He ended up getting married the same month. Uh, December 85 uh, to my mom, you know, very traditional arranged marriage. Yeah. Uh, and then that was it. My dad took my mom back to the UK in 86. So my mom's been out of the country also from uh, pretty much age 20 onwards. Uh, so they were, you know, relatively young in, in moving, you know, out of India to the Western world, uh, which a lot of my friends comment on my parents on that. They're like, they're pretty, you know, uh, modern Western, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, what What was your dad doing kept his... in UK? Like, what was your dad working on in the eighties in the UK? Um, if you listen to my mom tell the story, it's like chronic uh, underemployment. But uh, my dad did a <laughs> bunch of like you know different different jobs here and there. I mean, the way he explains it, it was like, man, he was like working at a printing factory where he had to like you know help this printing factory print uh, newspapers. He did like a summer of like apple picking. Uh, it, you know, in college to like pay his tuition. He tells us about that. Yeah. I mean, he got his degree in electrical engineering and ended up making it, uh, to a radio manufacturing company, which is where he worked for a while. Hmm. Um, and he got an MBA later, but, uh, yeah, my, my dad is always telling us about, you know, kind of the blue collar or, you know, not, not prestigious level of work that he had early, early in his years, just to kind of survive as a family. And, uh, my mom always laughs when uh, when she thinks of that time because she's like, "That's what was not what was advertised to her when she got married to him." Um, so yeah, anyway, you know, she brought my mom over in '86. Uh, I was born in '89, uh, which makes me 33 years old. And then my younger sister Swetha was born in '91, 
Um, so she's 30. And uh, we moved to the U.S. in 98. And, you know, at that time, my dad's family had returned to India. So, like, he, he, he my mom, myself, and my sister were basically the only, like, family that we had in the United Kingdom, right? And, like, you know, from an immigrant perspective, you want to be around other family members, right? That's maybe one of the few things that makes being an immigrant even doable to have that support system. Yeah. Um, so it was either return to India or immigrate to another country where we had family. Um, my mom had two brothers that were living in Elmhurst, uh, Illinois at the time. Uh, so we actually came over and settled in Chicagoland in 98. And that was back when if you had any kind of computer or electrical software, you know, knowledge, right? Like my dad did. I mean, they would basically staple, staple an H1B um, visa to your passport and, let you in. So um, we came in as British citizens on my dad's H-1B and then got green cards within two years. Um, so like our American dream got started pretty, pretty quickly. And they bought the house in Naperville in 99. So, yeah. and you guys know Naperville, right? Like pretty idyllic, very nice place to grow up, like diverse suburbs. We went to great public schools. We played sports. We uh, played music and, uh, you know, I did not grow up super, super wealthy, um, but I didn't grow up knowing anything else, you know? Like, yeah. we we as kids, I think, now that I look back on it, like, we had everything we needed. Um, now it's like, I think it's so much more complicated, right? And people, like, they think about, oh, I need to give my kid this, I need to give my kid this, I need to give my kid this. It's like, we never, uh, we never thought like that. We had a very happy childhood. So, um, so fast forward to today. My younger sister lives in Buffalo Grove. Um, she bought a house up there for the, what is it, the Adlai-Stevenson High School District. I think Adlai is like the fourth yep. or third best. She's told me this a bazillion times, but third or fourth best high school in Illinois. So she's already bought a house and positioned herself for my um, for my nieces and, and more of my future nieces and nephews, I guess. Um, her husband, uh, Coven Subapalan, University of Illinois grad, He's actually uh, Sri Lankan, like um, Raj's wife, yes, but is like Sri Lankan Tamil. Um, they got married during COVID, so that was kind of the big event for the family. It was April uh, 2020, one of the first COVID downsized weddings. And, um, you know, my parents and I were so upset with my sister at the time because we wanted her to postpone it, right? We were like yeah. six months, nine months. This COVID stuff will be over. We'll get it done and we'll have that big ceremony. Uh, but my sister, you know, which ended up being like the best decision, right? She was just like, no, this is our day. We're getting it done. So they got married April 2020 in my parents' living room. And um, my sister told us she was pregnant in May. Um, and they had their first son uh, last February. So he's a little little over one year. So family, uh, family's growing and... Um, to see your parents as grandparents, it's a really, it's a really special thing to kind of see them enter that next stage um, of their lives. It's a, it's a really, really joyful thing. So now, if you talk to my parents, I say the only thing they got to do is get me, uh, get me settled down. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't try to pull that trigger when you were in Hyderabad for a couple of weeks uh, recently for your cousin's wedding. 
<laughs> Pull a page out of your uh, grandfather's Stop, playbook. Take, yeah, luck, luckily the <laughs> tickets aren't cheap. You know, might as well, might as well finish it up. Yeah, I know, I know. Those first class tickets definitely aren't. I look, I looked into that. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not balling on that level yet for the first class tickets. Fly, flying international first class is when you know you've really, really made it. But uh, Sat, you, you grew up in uh, Naperville, Illinois. So for you mentioned that for those of you who don't know, Naperville is a very white collar community. You know, you think of your prim and proper suburbia neighborhood of Chicago. That's Naperville. So it was kind of a predominantly white neighborhood, and you guys were obviously Indian Americans migrated from British UK. What was it like growing up in that sort of neighborhood? And when did you start realizing that kind of your family life or your upbringing upbringing might have been a little bit different than some of your friends and some of the people in that neighborhood? You know, it was okay, Raj, because we came over. I was still pretty young. I was I was nine years old. I I lost my British accent in two months, and God, I wish I had kept it because damn, you know, I that quickly. Up the women um, had I, but uh, yeah. Oh man, my my younger sister, she was seven. My, if you hear my mom tell it, my she's lost her British accent in like three weeks. Um, you know, when you're when you're young, when you're young, when you're kids, you're very adaptable, right? So, you know, we cried a little bit when we landed at O'Hare from from Heathrow, and then like I saw the size of like cars in America, and I saw McDonald's, and I was like, I'm good. Like Star Spangled <laughs> Banner all day. Let's go. Um, so like, I don't know. There's the transition was okay. I mean. Kids don't ask a ton of questions. It's like, you know, we had black family. We had actually two two of the neighbors next to us. You know, Naperville is a pretty white town. But both of the neighboring households we grew up with were African-American. We had another Indian family on the block. It was like, that was it. My parents just kind of threw me out on the yard and were like, yeah, go hang out. And they taught me how to play basketball. They taught me how to play football. Um, we used to play a ton of Monopoly um, this is when Pokemon came out. So like we were playing a, a, a lot of Pokemon and I don't know, kids just, they assimilate, um, pretty, pretty quickly, which I think going back to what you're talking about, the differences between, you know, gen one, gen two, right. The generation that immigrated here as adults, uh, versus the guys who came as kids. It's like, you just, you just don't ask a lot of questions when you're, um, when you're kids, which maybe makes life a lot easier. Um, and then in terms of, like, Naperville at large, yeah, pretty white. I mean, very affluent, but you still had a pretty good pocket of Indian Americans. I mean, we had we had enough at my high school that, like, there are multiple, like, Indian groups. I mean, you could, like, take your pick. Um, it was fine. I mean, no, no issues. I went to prom with an all-Indian um, group uh, in high school of senior year, which, you know, not a lot of other places around the country where you could do that at that so- time. Any traditions uh, that you thought were normal growing up, like, and later realized, like, this is absolutely not normal in broader America? Yeah, like driving your new car over lemons in the driveway and getting the priest to, like, come. Like, I, I, will not, I will never forget, like, you know, describing that to a colleague once and like, they just thought it was the most bizarre thing. But, like, again, I mean, I grew up in such a large Indian community that, it never really seemed that odd, right? It, I just, I think in the end of the day, when you grow up how we grew up, you kind of, you know, it's a, it's a dual personality. It's a dual split. Like, you know, if you guys have ever seen the movie The Departed, there's a great scene where, you know, they're grilling Leonardo DiCaprio's character and they kind of talk about how he's with his 
mom in one part of Boston, which is like a really nice part. And then he's with his dad in like the South side, like the shitty part of Boston. And they're kind of going on about how he's like a dual character. I mean, I think like almost any immigrant Indian American growing up in the nineties, two thousands, you can kind of identify with that. Right. Like, all right. When I'm at a family party with my mom and dad, like, and I'm going to talk to Rakesh uncle about, you know, X, Y, Z, and then play bingo with everyone. And, uh, um, you know, eat Indian food. Like, that's just what you're going to do, right? And then when you're hanging out with, like, Timmy and Tommy, like, you're going to, you know, throw the football around and, you know, talk about X, Y, Z. And I just, I think especially having entered that system at a young age, you, you become very adept at being who you, who you need to be. And I've even taken that further in my adult life. Like, I have a DC persona and I have a probably, like, back home persona, right? Like, and, and they're not they're not the same person. I mean, if they were like, I probably wouldn't have much of a career. So, uh, you just, you know, you just kind of learn, like you gotta, you gotta adapt and, and be with the audience, uh, be, be who the audience wants you to be. And I hope that doesn't sound cynical. Actually, I think it's like a great, it's a great thing that we're all able to do because you're able to spend time with different kinds of people. And I'm just as comfortable with, with, with everyone nowadays, but yeah, definitely for traditions, um, try, driving over the lemons in the driveway, uh, putting our lights up for Diwali, putting our Christmas lights up for Diwali in November, and ha- and having all the neighbors um, think that you're uh, think that you're crazy, um, you know, large family parties on a regular basis, right? Like everyone on the street probably thought it was really weird that once a month we'd have you know, fifteen twenty families over. Um, I also distinctly remember. You know, my parents' desire for, like, extended family to come to every kind of, like, school sporting event or recognition or something, right? It's like, I think that's, like, such an Indian thing where it's, like, you're, you're rolling in, like, you know, 12 deep for, <laughs> you know, to watch to watch me do my, like, JV third, third doubles, like, game against Lake Park High School, you know? Um, so those... Those are definitely the things that come to mind. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about that, that it kind of carried over to your adult life. We've talked about it before where it's like we had that separation, right? Where you'd be like doing things that are <clears throat> with your Indian friends or related to your Indian culture, like going to Gerba, going to Swadde, things like that. And then when you, you hang out with your white friends, your Timmy and Tommy friends, you don't mention that. You kind of shy away from that. And for me and Subroot at some point, we both kind of realized – we stopped separating as much and just kind of leaned into it, I guess. And we were, who we were like, we didn't shy away from that, I guess. Um, was that the case for you? It sounds like, you know, maybe to an extent you still keep it separated, I guess, depending on the context or circumstance that you're in. But, you know, was there a period of time where you like, didn't want one party to know, all right, this is what you're doing in terms of how it relates to my Indian heritage and culture. Um, and then later on you're like, no, it is who I am. And, you know, I just got to embrace that, I guess. I think when I, I think when I was young, when I was young, it bothered me when it, when it was young, when I was young, I wanted to be, I wanted to be who Timmy and Tommy wanted me to be. Right. Like I, I, I think when you become older, you gain maturity, you gain actually kind of like a pride in in your culture. Right. Like now I'm like, I'm really proud about it. You know, like I love uh, our culture, our religion, the way that we celebrate weddings, the way that we have family relationships. Uh, and I, I think the world has evolved. The country has evolved also. Like people have more exposure and genuine curiosity around different cultures in 2022 
than maybe they did in 1995, right? I mean, like, you know, I'll sometimes have my white friends come to me and be like, hey, did you see Indian, like, match Matchmaker on Netflix? And I'm like, damn, you're watching Indian Matchmaker on Netflix? You know, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't even think that stuff's as interesting, but they do. Yeah. Um, you know, people eat Indian food now, right? Like, people, people have Indian Americans in their daily life. So I think there's a lot less pressure uh, on us now. I'll be curious to see how our kids are. Um, how the future generation is, because um, they'll grow up in an even more cosmopolitan country than than we did. Um, but but it, it's it's my hope that they retain some of their cultural cultural identity also, right? Like if you look at Irish Americans and Italian Americans and you know people who immigrated here a hundred years ago, right? Like not a lot of those traditions have have uh, stood the test of time. So we'll have to see how our community does. So I know we mentioned you have a lot of family in India and that you were there for your cousin's wedding just not too long ago. And you have that infamous picture with uh, the great Narendra Modi in pretty much every household as it relates to the Aledi family. Um, how's your, how does your family in India perceive kind of what you've what your career trajectory and what you've been doing these past five, ten years? Like how do they perceive all that now when you see them? Oh, they think I'm like the biggest baller in the world, right? Like, I mean, okay, just just to like give you a quick story here, you know, when my Indian relatives come to Washington, D.C., you know, I take them on a capital tour, right? I take them to the White House. Like, they're like literally walking around and like members of Congress are around us. I mean, think about how much access to our system of democracy we have here where like you don't even have to be some kind of big D.C. insider to like visit the White House, right? Yeah. And then, man, when I go to India, when I go to New Delhi, and I'm like, I'm looking at the Indian Parliament, it's like, there's like five gates, iron gates, there's like a hundred guys with AK-47s and guns, and it's like, you're not getting within a thousand yards of the Indian Parliament, you know, no matter who you are, especially if you're just regular Jishmo Indian guy. So, like, that's kind of their, like, perception of politics and access to political figures. So it's like, Man, when you got this guy like shaking around their Modi's hand, it's like they don't even have to know what you do for a career or whatever. It's just like the assumption is like, wow, this guy's like got it going on. So yeah, they're 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 pretty proud. Um, they they ask me questions about it all the time, and uh, yeah, it's a ton of ton of fun. And had a great time in India. Um, just went in February, and made me think a lot about like cultural differences and some of the questions I know you guys are asking your guests about you know, what, what makes it special, uh, to yeah. be of Indian descent, but, um, it was really good. It was really good to be back there. Nice. So move, moving forward, like, uh, you mentioned your family's growing, you're thinking about the next generation, your parents are grandparents. Um, would you encourage the next generation to get into politics? Yeah. One, 110%. I think, you know, something me and my parents have often discussed is, you know, like my dad's got all these like ancestral lands that he's like holding on to in India. And like, he's got this, like, you know, this property here and this property here. And I'm just like, well, man, you better like take care of it and like liquidate or do something. Cause like, you know, Swetha is not going to leave her house in Buffalo Grove to go live in like Delangana, India and take care of this, like, you know, hut. Right. I mean, I don't <laughs> think there's any, there's no return to the motherland. Like we're not, we're not going back. We're not yeah. looking backwards. Like, Next generation's looking forward. Like, they're going to be as American as can be, um, maybe even more so than our generation. So, like, yes, you should, of course, be involved in 
politics. Would you, if you, uh, you know, not, it's funny that you mentioned that and you'd also kind of touched on it after your trip, how, how well some of your family was doing in India. They were just balling out past your expectations and had a different level of wealth from what you remembered. If you could fast forward or rewind 30 years from now, would you go, would you tell your dad, not nah, chill out, bro, just like stay in India and let's see what we can do there? Or do you feel like <laughs> if you could do it all again, you'd still want him to go to the UK and ultimately America? <laughs> no, I'd still, I still want him to do, to do what he did because I think in our, in our daily lives, we definitely have more comfort and like, this is a very extreme case in India, but like, yeah, certainly like. I think more opportunity exists there now than than ever has. I don't think it's on an equal playing field with the United States, which is why you still see people trying to immigrate here. Yeah, you know, maybe one day those playing playing fields will be level. I don't know. I I I have a hard time seeing it happen in our lifetimes. It might be in our kids or our grandkids' lifetimes, and then maybe they'll have to make a decision on shit. Like we're sitting here in India, maybe we should go back to, or we're sitting here in the U.S., maybe we should go back to India. But I have. Um, I just don't see that happening. I mean, I think like future generations, they're going to have their roots here. Their future is going to be tied up with the future of this country. So like, yes, they should be getting involved in the governance and leadership of this country. And you see it in the United Kingdom. You know, I talked about that first wave of immigration to the UK, which is really in the 60s and the 70s, kind of before it hit the United States. And we now have, you know, major members of the prime minister's cabinet that are of South Asian or Indian descent. I mean, you could in a, in like in the next decade, you could see an Indian British prime minister of the United Kingdom, which is like crazy to think about. Mm. Um, I think the same thing is going to happen in the United States with all of these communities that started coming here in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. And uh, that, that's something that I also like very strongly feel about. I feel like what happened with Jewish, Jewish Americans, if you look at kind of from generation to generation, how they managed to become, such affluent figures in these various arenas, whether it's politics, whether it's corporates, finance, whatever the case, I feel like that should be the goal. And it is kind of the trajectory that us as Indian Americans are going on. Like, even if you look at politics, the last 10 years, what we've gone from then to now, if you look at tech, some of the CEOs and executive levels, like we didn't have anyone in those roles 10 years ago. Um, so it's interesting to see in our like adult lifetime, how much that's already taken off. And I think that'll only continue to be the trajectory for the rest of our lives and our kids' lives. Yeah. And I think, I think future generations, I think current, like our current generation, we have higher ambitions than what our parents would have had in those arenas. Like, you know, my dad used to always kind of say like, yeah, the Indian guys, they handle the technical work, right? Then you have the Zuckerbergs (laughs) and the Bill Gates that are making the speeches and making the strategic decisions, right? Now it's like, I feel like our generation, you know, we don't think that way. Like, we're like, no, we'll start the company ourselves, right? We'll do it ourselves. Absolutely. I think that should translate to politics and government. Like, we should have young Indian Americans that are running for office and working as political operatives and, you know, getting on CNN or being corporate lobbyists or what have you. Yeah, I don't think that mentality of, you know, play your role exists anymore. Or if it does, it's very sparse. There's no such thing. You feel like if whatever it is that you want to put your mind to or want to go pursue, you have that opportunity. And I feel like increasingly that's the mindset for our generation. Yeah, because I don't, I don't, I truly don't think that there's any barrier that your race, uh, racial background or being an Indian American, 
you know, puts up in, in anything you want to achieve. Like, you know, if you put your mind to it, if you want to do it, you can yeah. do it. And one of our last guests, Hirsch Patel, also, like, talks about, like, we also have the comfort of failure. Like, imagine, Sat, like, you get fired from Allstate, big scandal, exactly. and you fall from grace. You go back home to your house in Naperville, Illinois, and you're living well until you figure out what it is that you want to do right. Uh, next, right? So, like, we have that cushion as well. Which, which our parents did not have. I mean, to their for sure. to their credit, right? Like they again, it was a survival. It was a survival situation for them. Yeah. So, switching topics here, Sat. Uh, moving on to your dating life and talking a little bit more about that. <laughs> so, w- when you're out on the scene or out on the town, what are you looking for in your partner? Gosh, this is going to be a short segment if this is dedicated to my dating life, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I want someone that has family values, conservative values, right? Like, and I don't mean that politically. I mean, like, you know, fam, family oriented. I want someone who uh, is ambitious, someone who's independent, someone who has their own goals uh, and objectives. Like, you know, I, I want someone who's a good person I, and I want someone who can have a relationship with my family. I mean... You know, I know we've been thinking a lot about differences in American and Indian culture and what makes Indian culture different. But like, again, being at my cousin's wedding in India this last month, you just truly are reminded of how a marriage is really not just between two people, but it's between two families and how much your spouse um, will be kind of uh, in, in your own family structure. And I just think like if that relationship's not going to gel, if it's not going to work, like just the marriage is not going to, it's either not going to work or not going to have a lot of harmony. So I think that's probably the most important. I don't have a lot of other factors. Like I'm 33 and need to get it done soon. So, um, I think I'm, I think I'm ready. Um, I don't, I don't think I would have maybe made that statement two years ago, four years ago, six years ago. But I think at this point in time, you know, for a long time in my career, I was able to blame, working in politics and not like making a lot of money and not having job security, you know, I was able to put off the whole marriage uh, discussion based on that. But now certainly in my stage of my career, um, that's no longer, uh, no longer a reason, but yeah, I think, uh, I think I am ready. Every, every chapter in life, you gotta, you gotta move on. You gotta get it done. Right. So if you're listening like, at yeah. home and you have an eligible female bachelorette for Sathvik Aledi, please let us know. Let us know. We're looking. We're helping the man. He's, yeah. he's he, ma- wants, he, he wants to get it done. He's making pro- <laughs> family values, and he's making proper paper now, so he'll be able to take care of it. <laughs> he'll, he'll take care of your woman. Don't worry. Family values making proper paper, yeah. Um, what yeah are, put, my, I, um, put my cell phone number in the description on this episode. We will. We'll, we'll put your LinkedIn. We'll put, we'll put your LinkedIn so they can see that extensive biography. Um, and all the other greatest hits of South Carolina. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Sat, I know you mentioned that you're also, you know, you're socially conservative as well. Do you, do you identify with or hope that, you know, your future wife or partner plays kind of those gender roles that existed in our parents' household? You know, me and Sabri talk about this very much. Our moms were the homemakers. Like they did the things around the house and took care of the household. The man was the breadwinner. He'd do things in the yard or some of that stuff. And, you know, those were kind of very clear cut gender roles that we don't always necessarily abide by or agree with in this day and age personally. Is that what you want in an ideal world? 
in an ideal world, like an imaginary world that doesn't exist, like Sot's world, like, yes, because that's what I, that's what I grew up with, right? Like, I grew up with, I mean, my dad literally took a briefcase to work in the morning, came home in the evening, put the briefcase down, took his shoes off, and like, that was it, dinner would be ready. Uh, my mom largely did not work outside of the house until we were at least in middle school, um, so at least for our first, you know, 12 years, like, our, our mom was basically at home with us. Um, yeah, so in an ideal world, which I think most people would describe the world that they grew up in, that's human nature, um, I like that kind of setup. That's not the world that, that's not the world we live in right now. I mean, I would make an argument that if you're not a two-income, if you're not a two-income household, like, you're, you're falling behind, right? I mean, you might not even be able to provide... The, the standard of living that maybe you grew up with, right? If, if you don't have a mom and dad that are working. So, I mean, just from that purely selfish point of view, it's like, yeah, you're going to have to have a partner who has her own career, her own um, income. And uh, is it then fair to like still try to divvy up domestic duties uh, on, a, on a 1980s vision of how things work based on a woman who's working outside of the household? Like, no, it's not, it's not fair and it's not reality. So, I am prepared to accept uh, the realities of 2022. It's a very pragmatic answer. He sought the ladies long on meal kits and nannies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, but, you know, even the nannies, man, like, uh, and I got, I got plenty of friends that have nannies and have uh, professional child care help and au pairs and whatever you want to call them, but they don't do everything, bro. That's, that's why I you mean, keep the some parents of these guys, and like, they, Even they have... <laughs> well, they they might not do anything, uh, everything either, and uh, keeping the parents and in laws close that creates uh, different complications. So be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> so so dating in general in DC, um, does politics or being in politics and being an Indian Republican make it more challenging for you? Oh, one hundred percent. Because it's like. You know, most of the people I spend my time with are, are non-Indian. So, you know, if I'm kind of set on I'd like an Indian, you know, partner for for life, then I'm not really running into a lot of them in my day to day. Now, that's not to say that there aren't Indian Americans in the D.C. area. There's actually plenty, especially Virginia, Maryland. Um, but but yeah, just just from a working perspective, like man, if I was like a doctor making the rounds or like you know software uh, company guy it's like i would assume i would just have more exposure um to, to some potentials uh versus the career i have so now. do you want to marry an indian woman or like someone specifically not even just indian someone that's yeah. south indian Telugu? like how specific or do you have to get with this uh, i mean beggars can't be choosers raj <laughs> Yeah, that's a fair point. Very valid God, point. That was that was supposed to be a that was supposed that was supposed to be a laugh line, but it actually sounded pretty depressing. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, listen, like, <laughs> so, like obviously in Indian origin, uh, someone of the same faith uh, would would be would be ideal. But like, no, this whole like, okay, she needs to be from like this gom under this star symbol and like shit like that. Like, no, I mean, I I. Never cared about that and certainly don't it at age 33 in 2022. So, no, I just... Yeah. Someone someone who has the cultural competency, can get along with family, good values. Like, that's it. I don't I don't have a long Do you life. want the big... You said your sister. Um, 
you know, had to do the COVID wedding and had to do things on a much smaller scale. And obviously you've seen a lot of our weddings at this point. The we've Most of us, by and large, have done the big Indian weddings. Is that what you envision for yourself one day? Big four-day events, uh, big celebration? M- mine is going to be the biggest and grandest you'll have ever been to. So you'll have to start preparing months ahead of time. I just imagine um, yeah, your hands kind blowout. of doing the I mean, especially... uh, the Trump, uh, you know, how he does his hand manners, the biggest and grandest. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I just envision you doing that as you're saying that right now. It, 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 it'll be fantastic. Trust me. Believe me. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to tell you. People, people are talking about it. Um, I got the, no, I got the I best, mean, best wedding planners. Best wedding planners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. This is what I'll say. It's it's a perfect storm, right? Like, my parents were denied their nice big ceremony with their only daughter. So, like, I feel a little bit for them. Like, you got to give them one big party. And then I'm, like, a super gregarious, outgoing guy who loves a party. Obviously, you both know that about me. And then on top of it, like... I got I got a shit ton of people I got to invite to this thing, right? We got to get the DC crowd. We got to get the Illinois crowd. Um, it'll be it'll be an awesome awesome time. Yeah. Well, we look forward to it. You know, 2023, 24, 25, whenever that may be, I'll have it marked on my calendar <laughs> and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, and for all the weddings that I went uh, to for my friends and all the gifts and the bachelor parties and everything, attendance back. is mandatory. Mandatory. Man, I don't care if you have a newborn that was born two days ago, bro. You make that happen. <laughs> yeah, like we're wheeling the hospital bed in to the banquet table, yeah. and we're putting you on the hospital bed there. I'm not even going to put the yes or no like check boxes for the RSVP because I don't need it. If you're getting that invitation, I will see your ass there. I love it. Are you going to do dances at the wedding set <laughs> after? We'll do dance. We'll do some. We'll do some dances. We'll do some skits. We'll. I want to I want to try to be a little bit creative, right? Like try to do something that people haven't done, although I'm sure that's like very hard to do, but yeah. yeah. I'm going to go back to kind of your teenage and uh, college years. I remember this funny story about I think it was Manny that came over to your house and your dad was just venting about you, you, your dad, you know, as a teen and college kid, I guess, he, he didn't think the world of you at that point necessarily i remember manny telling us a story coming no, back he's like no. your dad's just venting to him saying satvik is an idiot let me tell you this guy is an idiot <laughs> <laughs> just going on a rant about <laughs> some shit or another that you messed up or fucked up what when did, when did your yep. dad's perception of you change because i know that was we've heard a lot of funny stories about your dad just thinking you're the biggest like fuck up for a while <laughs> Yeah. So, like, definitely college was a ton of, like, uh, oh, my God. Okay, he lost his North Face. He lost his phone. He (laughs) lost his dorm room key. It's going to cost $130. Uh, I mean, Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan basically recovered from the recession on my overdraft fees uh, in college alone. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, you know, my dad was like, why the fuck do you guys order Jimmy John's delivery and pay $4 for the delivery fee? Like, walk two blocks and go and get Jimmy John's. I mean, my father was just, like, he was always pretty upset about, like, the decisions that I made uh, and, like, all the mistakes that I'd make. And, like, the funny thing is, is, like, I've reformed, right? I mean, you grow up, you're reformed. Yeah. But I think one thing I kind of learned was, like, 
if it's your money, you do things differently, you know? And like, gosh, I was blessed to like have parents that would support me. Um, but definitely my decision-making was a little bit different, but yeah, I mean, in college I was just like, again, mediocre student. I was always like, you know, losing something or getting fined for something or this and that. Um, I was, you know, either dating a girl that they weren't happy about, or I was trying to join an Indian fraternity that they weren't happy about, or, (laughs) you know, there was just always some kind of, some kind of issue that I was in that they weren't happy about. So uh, that was basically my relationship with my dad for like probably a solid five years. And then, um, towards the end of college, like, yeah, I graduated early, which they, you know, they were happy about obviously, but like, then my dad was pretty unhappy with kind of my lack of direction or kind of, you know, failure to launch that I had for at least a year after I graduated. So, yeah. um, yeah, tough times, tough times at the time, but, uh, you know, your relationship with your parents evolves and changes too. I never realized that when I was 17 or 18 or 19. I kind of thought, like, this is it. Like, shit, we're going to be fighting for the next, like, you know, 40 years of my life. And you <laughs> actually kind of realize, like, man, when you're when you're 30, like, your parents treat you a lot differently than when you were 20. Um, and actually, I get along, like, really great with my parents now, as, as you guys know. Like, yeah. I basically lived with them during COVID. Um, we did a ton of travel and uh, really spent a lot of time together. And you kind of see, like, your relationship with your parents, like, it evolves and has different chapters also. For sure. Although my dad still loves reminding me about all that stuff from 10 years ago. <laughs> it's nice to go through that transition where it's no longer, they're not playing that parental role, but they become like just a genuine friend in your life that you can, you know, share good memories with, have a good time with. And uh, it's nice to kind of transition to that post, post-college post and into early adult life. Yeah, but they, they, they don't forget, like, uh, you know, Mother's Day last year, my dad was like, you know, always uh, so many mothers, mothers, mothers on your credit card in college, but I, you never <laughs> bought your mother uh, a gift for the Mother's Day. I saw so many mothers on your credit card. For those of you who don't get the reference, mothers and mothers, too, were these infamous bars on this uh, area called Russian Division that we would frequent in college. <laughs> So a lot of mother statements, and the other one was a place called Legroom, which I don't know how many times I told my parents I was buying shoes in college to explain those charges. And they're like, why are you continually <laughs> buying $200 pair of shoes every Saturday and Sunday? How many shoes do you have? <laughs> so, Sat, uh, growing up, what was the, the most trouble you've ever gotten into? Like with your parents or the authorities? Just like being getting in trouble. Um, so I had I've only had one girlfriend in my entire life, and it was in high school going into college, and my parents were very unhappy. I mean, that was like, you know, that was probably the worst trouble I've had with my parents. The worst my relationship was with my parents. So that involved a lot of sneaking around. That involved a lot of like using friends' cell phones to make calls. Um, that involved a lot of like. Yeah. Pretending I was going to work and then meeting up with um, this person. So certainly like ages 17, uh, 17, 18, 19 were tough. And then when I was in college, like, you know, I had more freedom. So like I would go and like, you know, visit her in St. Louis or she'd visit me in Chicago. Um, but there were kind of times where I got caught with that too. So yeah. those are those are definitely worst times, worst times with my with my with my folks. They were not good times. Now, now they bother me all the time about not having a girlfriend, ironically, but... 
Yeah, it's it's funny how that works where, uh, you know, it's like you grow up 20, 25 years, like no girlfriend, no girlfriend, no female interaction, and then, all right, get married. Grandkids. <laughs> so did your parent did your parents have Uh, any idea of kind of i know they saw the mother statements obviously and all that and they knew that you know you got into some (laughs) got up to mischief in college so to speak but did they have any idea as to like how much we partied and went out in college do they now like my parents still they know i partied a lot like they got an understanding by the time senior year rolled around like how much i was doing it but there were like weeks where we'd like thursday friday saturday like do they grasp that (laughs) <laughs> i think same same thing like from freshman year to senior year like my parents gained a better understanding right and like they would find more receipts they would see my more of my credit card bills they would talk to more of my friends um and like to the to their credit my parents were never like they were super strict about some things like again having that girlfriend was a no-go but like you know drinking underage like in college i would never say my parents were like hugely um opposed to it or angry about it um but yeah i think towards like the end of college my parents kind of finally got the idea of like yeah you're basically going out like every night um my mom once uh she found the uh the the liquor the liquor receipt for one of our sasa banquet like pre-parties <laughs> where it was like i mean like 360 dollars basically worth of liquor which was a lot back in 2009 um, and I think she kind of got the, 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 she got the scale of it. So, yeah. um, who knows if they'll ever truly understand. I don't know if other people will ever understand either. Like I talk to people all the time that like never had anything like it in college. Like yeah. they would describe like, yeah, we went out for this one like senior spectacular and like, you know, we did this and that. I'm like, dude, that's like, we did that like every week. Yeah. <laughs> Tuesday. Dude, it's it's funny. I don't think my parents like got an idea of how much I partied, but they never saw like the after effects, right? Like the, the Sunday hangover or the two days hangover. So one of the funniest things that uh, happened last summer, we had moved home after um, I finished fellowship and in between me starting my job and that summer where we got married. And we went to Vegas that July 4th weekend and we came home Jeez. Sunday night. And I was literally, you know, I, I can't hang like that. I'm 32. So it took me like a full three days to recover and feel normal again almost. I was like sleeping 12 hours a night, like just like looked miserable each day, like didn't say anything. And Serindy, like on Monday or Tuesday, like walks into the office and my mom's sitting there and she sees on her phone, she's Googling like, can you die from drinking too much on her iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> And she's just like so concerned asking Serindy like is he okay and she's like this is like normal you don't get it this is your first time seeing it but this is par for the course <laughs> well if, if auntie ever does find any results on that she should send them to all of us because uh yeah it's uh it's different when you're older right you feel you feel it a hell of a lot more yeah but no, those were those were the those were the best times in college. I would, I would never give up anything for those. And like, you know, there were tough times, there were good times. But like, I'm a big like the ends justify the means kind of guy, right? Like, if you're happy with the end result, then you got to be happy with the journey, right? And like, I was just yep. so blessed to have uh, great friends like you at school, Raj, and then to be able to come down to U of I and meet people like Savrut. I mean, 
Think about think about how much fun we all had. Yeah, man. Best years of our we're life. Blessed, man. We're we're truly blessed. Yeah. All right. So, uh, closing closing uh, question here, Satsa. What makes you Indian? I think my respect and closeness with family, and recognition that sometimes friends are family. I think if I could sum it up, that that's how I would say it. And like, you know, what makes us special as Indians? And I really thought about it when I was in India in February and what's so special about our culture. It's like how you treat family with so much respect, so much love, so much like just unconditional like, you know, you show up at my door at 3 a.m. in the morning and it's just like I need a place to place a crash. It's like you don't even ask, right? You don't even ask a question. Um, I just think like the love, the love that we have for our family members, it's just so distinct and special in our culture. And again, like literally – having friends that are like family having friends that it's literally like if i show up at your door at 3 a.m like i need a place to crash like you know no questions um i think that's really special around around our culture so i think if i could answer that question that's how i'd answer that yeah sweet nice all right man we got a bunch of rapid fire questions here that we're just gonna throw your way we'll take turns me and subject so whatever comes to your mind first spit it out all right um favorite political show Okay. Veep. Solid. Narendra Modi or Mahatma Gandhi? Narendra Modi. Mitt Romney or Mitch McConnell? Mitch McConnell. Favorite Indian food? Lamb biryani. Thumbs up or Pepsi? (laughs) Pepsi. What's... What's the last Indian movie you watched? I don't even know. It had it had Ajay Devgan and it had a bunch of older actors and it was like an action movie. I don't know. It was terrible. I saw it at the AMC on Route. <laughs> Damn, 59. was this re- <laughs> Was this recent? <laughs> yeah, I, that's I, where I saw grew it up. in um I saw it in December. I'll look it up and send it to you guys. My dad was like, "Let's go to this." And it was like you know, I went because I wanted to spend time with, with, with those guys, but it was not a good movie. Yeah. Well, Sat, that's all we got for you, man. Um, any closing remarks that you want to say before we get you, let you go? I hope it was uh, it proves to be an interesting discussion for the listeners, and uh, maybe someone learned something from listening to it, and thanks for thinking of me, guys. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, We had a great time. This was a fun discussion, hearing about kind of your upbringing, your career, and all the nuances of that. Definitely learned some things about you. So I I think it'll be an interesting listen. Uh, Sat, feel free to plug yourself if you want to throw out your IG handle, your Twitter, your LinkedIn, uh, your phone number. Fuck it, man. Go for it. I know you're putting that good energy out in the world. (laughs) I I have been told I have one of the most entertaining Instagram story games of all time, so... I suppose I'll say at Sat S A A T Aleti A L E T Y on Instagram. Go find me there. Love it. He does. He live streams essentially as close as you can get to live streaming something via story, which is <laughs> fascinating to watch always. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, that concludes episode number three. You can follow us on Instagram at the Raj and Bubs Pod. You can follow us on Twitter at raj and bubs pod you can shoot us an email that'll be on both our instagram and our twitters you can drop us some comments about what you liked what you didn't like guests that you want to see in the future 
Uh, we love to hear your comments and your input. So thanks for tuning in. Sabrut? Yeah, nothing else there. Just if you want to see our website, therajanbubspod.com. I uh, have some more info for you up there. Uh, but it's been, an, uh, it's been a pleasure, and it's been a fun episode here.